Hi, everyone. This is Michelle Gale. I'm so happy you found your way to this podcast, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'd love for you to become a part of my community. So if you're inspired, please visit BeAMindfulParent.com and sign up to my weekly newsletter. By signing up, you will receive the Busy Parent's Guide to Practicing Mindfulness, which includes learnings, meditations, and practices to support your path. From my website, you can also purchase the online conference from September if you missed it, as well as buy some other courses and coaching offerings I have available. I love keeping this podcast free of advertisements and always appreciate the support of my work. Also, if you love this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Life is messy, and it's exactly within this messiness where our greatest opportunities for growth live. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the podcast, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. I'm your host, Michelle Gale, and today I am with someone so special. She's a friend of mine and also a colleague. Her name is Linda Graham, and Linda has been passionate about learning and growth all of her life, guiding people on reliable paths of personal growth and self-transformation, healing, and awakening all of her professional life. Her work focuses on helping people strengthen capacities to cope with the challenges and crises of their lives, recover an authentic sense of self, deepen into healthy, resonant relationships, and engage with the world through meaningful and purposeful work. She has written two books. Her first was called Bouncing Back, and her second, which by the time this podcast is aired, will be out in the world is called Resilience, Powerful Practices for Bouncing Back from Disappointment, Difficulty, and Even Disaster. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Michelle. I'm always delighted to talk with you. I'm very much looking forward to this. Mm, me too. I think this is such a such an important conversation for parents. And, you know, we all have struggle in our lives. And so what more do we need a little more of than resilience? Absolutely. Right. And before we get started, I also just, I was able to um, get an early copy of Linda's book and I wanted to share my acknowledgement with everyone. Is that okay? We'll start there. Absolutely. Um, So here's my, what I wrote about Linda's book. None of us will saunter through life without facing ups and downs that can sometimes bring us to our knees. In resilience, Linda Graham walks us skillfully to the edges of our capacities and potential where resilience is patiently waiting. She offers practical tips and ideas to rewire our brains for inner calm and wise action. This is a book I will come back to over and over again. So good. It's such a good resource. So Linda, would you just start out... Um, by sharing with us a little bit about just what you mean by resilience first, so everyone knows the territory we're in. So resilience traditionally has been thought of our capacities to cope with adversity, with crises and challenges. The behavioral scientists identify three factors that contribute to our resilience. One is the severity of the external stressors that we're facing, Mm -hmm. whether we have just a hiccup or a hurricane. The other is the strength of our external resources. Do we have the support of family and friends and community and finances and health? 
And the third is our own internal resources, capacities of grit and determination and the will to endure, the will to survive. As neuroscience comes in and helps us understand how the brain works and how we can strengthen the functioning of our brain to be more resilient, I'm focusing mostly on response flexibility, the capacity to perceive what's happening and our reactions to what's happening, but then to be able to shift gears, to see the broader picture, the broader perspective, and to be able to have um, discernment of what our choices are and to be able to choose wisely. Now, when we're parenting, things can happen very, very quickly and we can be reactive and then we take a breath and then we can think things through and maybe choose something different. But we're strengthening the capacity of the brain to be resilient, to be flexible in its responses. And so that being able to respond flexibly happens quicker. We, you know, we see it faster, we clean it up faster. And so we can become more resilient in real time, immediately, as well as for the long run, that becoming the way of being. Mm. So I'm imagining, how would you speak to this through, let's say I'm, um, I'm a parent and there's an argument going on in my house. Um, you know, my, my child is upset and they go in their room and they slam the door. Um, so talk through response flexibility with me. <laughs> so, so what I would what I would talk through in that moment is first coming to safety within our own nervous system. We do react. We're hardwired to react in milliseconds. Mm-hmm. And we can go into fight flight. We can go into numbing out and collapse very quickly without going through conscious processing at all. So the first thing I think we have to do is come back to the natural baseline physiological equilibrium in our nervous system, in our body brain, so that when we come into a sense of safety and trust again within ourselves, then the higher brain comes back online and we're able to think things through. So can I teach you a practice that I often recommend to people right off the bat? Yes, we would love that. So I teach hand on the heart, and it's very, very simple. It's simply immediately putting your own hand on your own heart center so you feel the warm, safe touch of your hand. And you begin to breathe more slowly, more deeply, more gently into the heart center, five or ten breaths. If your kid is safe in the bedroom, lock the door. Even if he's upset, you have time to do this. Mm, Yeah, I'm doing it right now. I'm not even triggered. It just feels good. (laughs) Oh, it feels very good. And I'll talk in a minute about what's going on in the body brain, but going through this exercise of hand on the heart, breathing softly, gently, deeply, breathing in a sense of ease or goodness or Mm -hmm. safety or trust into the heart center. And then remembering a moment, just one moment, not a whole relationship, but just one moment when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another person. It could be with the same child that just slammed the door, but a partner or a child or a friend or a teacher or a therapist or a spiritual figure or a pet. And you just remember this moment and get the feeling in your body of feeling safe and loved and cherished. And you let the warm glow of that feeling wash through your body. And you just stay there for a few seconds until your body, brain, your nervous system is back in its equilibrium. 
Now, what we're doing there, besides the breathing into the heart center, which is activating the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system, and it is the branch that calms us down and brings us back into this safety zone. When we remember a moment of being loved and cherished and safe in a relationship, it activates the release of the oxytocin, which is the hormone of safety and trust. It's the hormone of bonding and belonging. It is the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. Mm. It happens when we remember being safe and loved and cherished. The warm hand on the heart helps activate those neurons to fire to release the oxytocin. So when we're releasing the oxytocin and coming back into a sense of safety, this tool is powerful enough to calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. So it's the first thing I suggest people do, practicing it many times a day, not necessarily when you're in stress or upset, but just practicing it so your body brain gets used to this pathway. It builds and establishes and strengthens this pathway so that it's more and more easy to reliably hand on the heart, breathe deeply, think of a moment, oh, right, I'm back in my equilibrium. Then you can figure out how you want to deal. Mm. So you got that moment of pause, you mm-hmm. lower your cortisol, mm-hmm. you increase your oxytocin, mm-hmm. and then you get choice. I mean, it's a mindfulness practice, right? That's, that's based in the body. It is a mindfulness practice, and it's been incorporated, in a way, into the mindful self-compassion break, which is very, very similar, noticing the startle, noticing the upset, hand on the heart, and then noticing, ah, this is a moment of suffering. I'm a little pissed off here. Ouch. I don't like this. And then being able to say the phrases, may I be kind to myself in this moment. It breaks the automaticity of our very fast survival responses. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I accept this moment exactly as it is. May I accept myself in this moment exactly as I am. And then I would add, may I accept my child exactly as he is in this moment. Mm. And that opens the heart back out of, it opens the heart and mind, back out of the contraction and the reactivity and the negativity, back out into an openness, a receptivity, Again, we can see the bigger picture. We get more optimistic. And studies have shown that when we practice compassion or any of the positive emotions, gratitude, joy, awe, the direct, measurable, cause and effect outcome is resilience. We're more capable of responding to the challenges from a larger, more wide open mindset. And so self-compassion break from, you know, the mindful self-compassion protocol, Kristen F. and Christopher Germer, probably the second thing that I teach people to cultivate on an ongoing basis. So this mindful self-compassion becomes a way of being. It's a place we can automatically go to when things go haywire. Mm, and what do you say to people? Um, Cause I can hear people listening to, you know, may I accept this moment just as it is and accept my child just as it, is, as it is that will say, well, if I'm accepting things just as they are, how is anything going to get better? Ah, well, exactly. We practice mindful self-compassion when things are going not so well because it opens us up into the mindset where we can do better. We may still feel bad, but we can do better. We have the bandwidth in our own mind to make a better choice. So it's not that 
um, mindful self-compassion or gratitude or hand on the heart. It's not that any of these practices solve the problem. They just bring us back into the heart-mind space where we can solve the problem. That's what they do. They shift the functioning of the brain. They shift mm -hmm. the functioning of our nervous system so that we can be more resilient again. Mm, that's helpful. That's really helpful. And then when we are in this state, can you talk a little bit about, I know you speak to kind of this relational intelligence Mm -hmm. um, and I'm imagining that this practice moves us into more the ability to be more relationally intelligent. Right. So, yeah, so one of the bases of our relational intelligence, and especially if we're a parent, is called theory of mind. And it's simply the idea that I know I am I and you are you. Mm. And we are separate, different people. And you can be having your emotions and they're different than my emotions. And you can be having your thoughts and your behaviors different than what I am thinking or how I'm acting. And that's essential for a parent to be able to engage with the child's behavior, their feelings, their tantrum, and still be able to say, but I can have different feelings and different behaviors in this moment. Mm. I don't have to get entrained in how you're acting out or having a meltdown in the moment. And in fact, if I can be calm and regulated and engage with myself, I can entrain you. And I can bring you into my sense of calm. But I do that knowing that we are two separate people and that I'm going to be reacting differently than you're reacting. That also allows the parent then to see, well, what is going on over there with you? And instead of having our own judgments or misperceptions it's so easy we begin to have awareness and empathy for what the other person is feeling or why they're behaving the way they're behaving and that leads us to a stance so important in parenting or any kind of relationship no matter what's going on there is a reasonable understandable reason for it it's a protective, defensive strategy. I get that. I can understand why you're behaving the way you're behaving. And then I can calm myself down and begin to relate more directly, more empathically to how you're behaving. What are, what are some other, I, I'm, I'm thinking through like, wow, in that moment, you know, there's stress going on and how easy it is to take on the stress of others. And so I love this frame that you're giving about, mm -hmm. you know, I'm me and you're you. And because you have something going on, that doesn't mean I have to get dragged into it, which is not easy. Right. To, right. Um, but these, the practice, they have a hand on the heart and these other practices can support getting us to that place. Um, but what you're saying now is now I'm going to be thinking through in that moment, like, what could this be about? So is this along the lines of, are they not feeling safe? Are they not feeling loved? Are they hungry? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I think about kids, like often when my, even my 11 year olds, but when my kids were younger, it was much more prevalent. But even now my 11 year old will just be in this grumpiest place and, you know, I'll kind of feel this kind of spinning going on in the house. And all of a sudden it'll come to mind. I'll say, Prudy, have you eaten anything? Mm -hmm. And he's like, no mama. I'm like, what? how about we just pause right now? Can we just pause and, and stop 
And how about you eat something and then let's see how you feel and I'll see how I feel. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that will often be the case. So is that kind of where we are here? Well, here's what I would suggest now. As we pause, probably the first thing, the most important thing is to be able to reconnect with the child, as you just described, with your own son. Mm. But to reconnect, and we often do that best with touch. Yeah. Holding. If the child is resistant, just presence and soft mm-hmm. voice, slowing down, mm-hmm. really tuning in, really connecting. The hand on the heart to calm ourselves down. The theory of mind to know that I don't have to get swept up in this drama. But mm-hmm. the connecting with, okay, sweetheart, what's really going on with you? And, you know, um, I teach this a lot too, that that 93% of our emotional communication is nonverbal. Wow. Not, I don't always remember the numbers exactly, but it's something like 55% is through facial expression and body language. Mm-hmm. Another 38% is through tone and prosody of voice. Only 7% is words. So when we're a parent trying to reconnect with our child, we use our facial expressions, our eye contact, our body language, our gestures, our holding them, soothing them, comforting them. And the words come in a, ah, sweetheart, low and slow, low and slow. This is so hard. I'm so hard. Sorry, this is happening. And then the, the words begin to, and what's going on? Are you hungry? Are you tired? Did somebody mm-hmm. hurt you, upset your feelings? You know, we use our words, but we first connect through touch and through that warm, safe presence. That's probably the most important thing. Mm, I love that. And and for those of us um, who are graced with highly sensitive children, we get to practice even more because they are, mm-hmm. when, I, when I listen through your sharing on, you know, body language and facial expression, you know, my youngest is... He is attuned to the world and attuned to me, and he can sense even the slightest mm-hmm. you know, issue that I might be going through or struggle, particularly if it has to do with him. Um, mm-hmm. So it really calls us as parents to practice even more deeply and mm-hmm. in a more sensitive, more sensitive way. Right. So now you're making me think of something I learned along the way here, that the first thing we might say is, Oh, it's just the, the empathy, the compassion. Oh, mm. the next thing as we're connecting and soothing and calming down is, ah, oh, ah, oh, mm. so, so happy I'm here with you in this moment. So we're using that nonverbal body-based somatic communication to connect, which regulates, mm, we, we're using our own regulated nervous system to regulate the nervous system of the child. And that's mm-hmm. mostly nonverbal. And most parents can do that quite intuitively. And so we're using our somatic resources as the foundation then of connecting emotionally and relationally. And eventually, reflectively, can we talk about what's going on here? Can we have an inquiry? Can we figure this out? Mm-hmm. But we begin with the body, connect with the emotions, reestablish the strength and warmth of the relationship, and then we can begin to talk through what the options are. Mm, and for those people not familiar with the word somatic, um, can you just speak to that for a moment? Right. Somatic is body-based. And our body has 
tremendous intuitive wisdom about what we need to feel safe and protected. And it also carries all the signals of whatever is going on. You know, our emotions really are body-based signals that go off and say, hey, pay attention, something important is happening here. So we have a different feeling in our body if we feel angry than how we feel in our body if we feel sad, than how we feel in our body when we feel safe or joyful. So being able to pay attention to those body-based somatic signals in ourselves, but also in the child, is really kind of the first place we start to try to make sense of what's going on and to also reach out and connect and comfort. Mm, Because I think often we go to our mind, you know, we're trying to figure something out, like what's Mm -hmm. going on here, right? And we kind of forget there's anything below the neck. (laughs) Well, we we also have to remember that the higher brain is not online. Mm. We're stressed if we feel in danger, if we um, are frightened or angry, the higher brain is not online. And so we come, we use the tools to calm the body brain down, to come back into that safety zone. It's called the range of resilience, to come back in that safety zone in the nervous system so that in fact, the higher brain can come back online. And you notice the difference when you're feeling kind of frantic and out of sorts, grumpy, Or when you feel, oh, yeah, right, this is what's going on. I know how to deal with this. I've done this before. You can tell when your body, your higher brain comes back online. And that's what we need. I mean, we need the functioning of the higher brain, the prefrontal cortex, to be able to regulate our nervous system, regulate our emotions, attune to the other person, empathize with the other person, to have a sense of self, what's going on, what am I experiencing? It is also the structure of the brain that we use for response flexibility. So the tools we use to come back into our safety zone and bring the higher brain back online are what reawaken that capacity to respond flexibly. It's what reawakens that capacity. Then we can be mindful. Then we can be choiceful Mm. about what the options are here and what would be the best option given the circumstances, what, what would be the consequences of what I'm choosing to do? Mm. And you mentioned, as you were speaking, this zone of resilience. Is that what you said, a range of resilience? Range of resilience. There are many terms for that that come from different paradigms, different modalities. Um, but there is a natural body-based equilibrium in our nervous system um, Rick Hansen calls it the green zone. Behavioral scientists will call it the range of resilience. Trauma therapists call it the window of tolerance. But we know what we feel like when we're both calm and relaxed, but engaged and alert. It's that zone we can get there with mindfulness practice. We can get into that zone of being present, but not um, hijacked, not repressing, not being flooded. We're just present and everything is doable. Mm, thank you for that. Um, well, you know, the, the, the title of the podcast is Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. And so you can imagine when I was on your website snooping around, you know, getting ready for this talk with you, I saw, um, some, I saw something written that said, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> And I just, right, I wrote it down right away. I was like, oh yeah, baby, that's where we are. (laughs) 
<laughs> Would you speak to that a little bit? I'd love, I'd love to hear, hear what you had to share. Sure. Well, um, in the book, I'm trying to help people cope with any level of their resilience being disrupted wow. from barely a wobble, something happens, you notice it, you've got your tools, you come back to center, to a more serious struggle or a heartache um, where we really have to take the time, pull in our friends, pull in our resources, you know, use the practices of mindfulness and self-compassion and calling on other people, to sometimes there's just too much. There's been trauma or there is trauma, it's unresolved. And so these practices are meant to take us all the way through from barely a wobble to the too much trauma. And so one of the things I do suggest to people, I mean, I, I learn a lot from other people all the time, of course. Yeah. And so I now use this approach that I learned. I pulled it together from two people. From my friend, Janet Friedman, catch the moment, make a choice. And from the environmental activist, Julie Butterfly Hill, every moment has a choice and every choice has an impact. So when you put that together, that's the trajectory of resilience. Catch the moment, make a choice. Every moment has a choice. Every choice has an impact. So when we apply that to never let a good crisis go to waste, the, the Chinese character, the pictograph character for crises is actually two characters. It's danger and opportunity. Mm. And so if we can approach a crisis of something important is happening here, what are my tools? But also, what am I learning? Or afterwards, what did I learn? Or what could I have learned to have done this differently? So that resilience is a lot about learning tools, but also learning that we can learn tools, learning that we can be resilient. We can rewire our brain to respond to crises differently. So to never let a good crisis go to waste means drawing all the, on all the tools that we have it also means finding the gift in the mistake, finding the silver lining, um, what good came out of this. And if no good ever came out at all, then what would I learn to do it differently so that it has a different outcome the next time? So we're, we're lear learning about resilience. <laughs> we're learning to be resilient. And we're learning that we can learn. And I think that's maybe the most important takeaway for parents or anyone. We can learn these skills. We can build these capacities. We can learn to do it differently. And then we take some pride in that learning. We take some pride in our intention and our competence at becoming a better parent. Mm, I love this. And you're reminding me of, I just um, recently uh, wrote a wrote to my newsletter about a story um, of my eldest son and I, because he's in transitions in the high school. He's a freshman. He's at a different school. Um, it's, a, it's Catholic school. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of homework. It's very different from where he came. And, um, and he's really been struggling um, mm -hmm. in the evenings with all the homework and um, I've been just really by his side for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, supporting him and helping him figure out how to coordinate things and organize and remind himself about tests. And, you know, there's so much going on um, and he has slow processing. So things happen kind of in slow motion. Mm -hmm. and, and recently what I wrote about was how he was just feeling so defeated. And he's like, there's just too much homework. 
you know, it's ridiculous. And, and so, yeah, you know, I'm, and I'm thinking of what you were sharing earlier. I just had empathy for him. Like I, my heart really is with you and it hurts. Like, this is hard. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been here with you. I know this is hard. And what do you think you have to learn here? Because I'm pretty excited, even though this is hard (laughs) and looks like it's, you know, it's, it's a mess you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. And then, you know, I shared what I thought. He shared what he thought. We kind of came up with, what is this? What are you going to, how are you going to grow over right. a month, two months, this school year? Like, what is it going to look like at the end? So, Michelle, you're talking about helping your son shift from any kind of fixed mindset. This is too hard. I don't know how to do this. It's never going to get any better to what Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset of, well, it's hard. I didn't get it the first time around. But if I try, mm-hmm. if I persevere, if I you know, believe in myself and believe in this process, I'll get it. And switching to that growth mindset is a key part of being resilient. We often don't get it the first time around or the 10th time around. But if we believe in the process of learning and growing and we intend to show up for that, then kids can begin to experience themselves as growing, becoming more competent, becoming more resilient. And there's a tremendous pride that comes from that. The bonus that comes from that is researchers have found that whenever we can feel, we feel confident because we feel competent at something. Mm. Any time we have ever felt competent at anything, that is transferable to the next new thing we need to try. In other words, we don't need to be already competent at what we're trying to do. If we have an experience of being competent at anything, we can experience ourselves as being competent and you just apply that to the next new thing you need to learn. So if your son transfers, I don't know, I'm making it up, but being competent at playing soccer, then he can transfer that sense of competence, sure, I can do this, to whatever he has to learn to do about his homework. Mm. I appreciate that so much. Yeah, it's such a such a journey. Well, we only have, I, I can't believe how fast the time has gone by. <laughs> um, what have we not talked about, Linda, that's in the book that, you know, people are, you know, respond to um, in your programs and your workshops and your therapy that you do? Um, what have we not talked about yet? Um, well, I think something that's important and people remind me all the time mm-hmm. is how what a messy world we live in, how messy life can be. We are human beings and we're not resilient all the time, every time. Mm. We're not. We get overwhelmed. We get confused. We get frightened. And maybe we don't have the resources to draw on in the moment that would help us find our own center again. So I think there's something about being patient and forgiving with ourselves as we're learning these practices and rewiring our brain and moving into a growth mindset so we keep going and we put our hand on our heart and say, this is really hard to remember that this is, you know, resilience is foundational. It is like mindfulness or like compassion. It's a practice that we do to meet many, many, many different circumstances, many, many different crises and challenges. So resilience really is a lifelong practice. And we get better at it as we meet different crises, different scenarios, different challenging people in our lives. That baseline resilience is strengthening. 
as we go through our lives and practice it. So that even when things go haywire and it looks like this time we're not going to make it, to be able to remember that this practice goes deep, it, it is a lifelong practice, and we're going to find our way through. And then we remember to call on our resources to help us find our way through. So just that sense of patience and forgiveness, I think, is also pretty important. And we, being resilient isn't just being strong. You know, it's being persevering, even through the moments when we're not strong. And I can't imagine what more we need as parents <laughs> than, <laughs> than what you just described. Thank you so much for this beautiful book called Resilience and um, for your uh, generosity in sharing with us today and just for all the work, beautiful work that you're doing in the world. Well, Michelle, thank you for the opportunity to see things from a different angle or hear myself express something in new words. <clears throat> so it's really been a joy for me also to talk about resilience and just to almost have reverence for mm. our capacities to learn how to be resilient. Mm, beautiful. And, and I'm assuming it's easy to find you online, right? Can, can you share just how people can find you? It's lindagraham-mft.net. But you just Google resilience, Linda Graham, and I'll come up pretty quick. And there you are. All right. Well, we will say goodbye. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes. We'll say goodbye to all of you out there. May you meet this moment fully. May you meet this moment with kindness towards yourself and others. Thanks for listening to Mindful Parenting in a Messy World. Michelle's new book, Mindful Parenting in a Messy World, Living with Presence and Parenting with Purpose, is now available at Amazon and at mindfulparentingbook.com. Get your copy today.